I really do stand in awe of Jesus. The more that I study the scriptures, the more that I get to know him personally, the more amazing he seems to me. For us, we people, we never really know what a week is going to look like. We might have activities and meetings on the calendar, and we wake up Monday morning and fretting and anxious about all those things that are marked on the calendar, and then unexpectedly, sickness invades. Meetings get canceled. Responsibilities get shifted. And when the week is over, you look back and it unfolded nothing like you expected. Might have been worse, might have been better, but it was certainly different than what you were anticipating. The gospel writers show Jesus to be fully in control at every moment during the last week of his life. As the week progresses, every confrontation, every teaching moment, every step Jesus takes toward the cross, he takes with precise intentionality. On Sunday afternoon, he rode a donkey into Jerusalem, welcomed with much misguided fanfare. Mark tells us he then entered the temple late that evening, looked around, and then left without incident. On Monday morning, walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, he cursed a fruitless fig tree to death and then entered the temple and created a memorable incident. And then Tuesday would prove to be his busiest day. It began just like Monday, he and his disciples walking from Bethany to Jerusalem in the morning. When the disciples commented on the now dead fig tree, he explained the meaning of what he had done. The cursing of the fruitless fig tree to death symbolized the condemnation of the fruitless temple. Nevertheless, he and his disciples continued walking, re-entering the condemned temple where he was immediately accosted by the chief priests and the elders. Understandably, they were still reeling from his actions on the previous day in the temple. But they most particularly wanted him to justify his actions. Who does this guy think he is? Where does he think he gets the authority to make such a fuss, interrupting the holy work of the sacrificial system and drawing on Isaiah's words and Jeremiah's words to announce such judgment against God's house? After Jesus skillfully dodges their question, he directs a trio of judgment parables against the Jewish leaders, which included the chief priests and the elders of the people, many of whom would have been Pharisees. Matthew tells us in Matthew 21, 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Unhappy about the way Jesus painted them, these Jewish leaders attempted to go on the offensive again, attempting to trap him in his words. Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians, oh my, attempt to overcome the one who is the word in a battle of words. Jesus masterfully maneuvers through their word problems and answers their questions, but then he turns to ask them a question, the most important question. You see, they had been asking about taxes and the nature of the future resurrection and the greatest commandment in the law. But what matters most is and always will be who is the Messiah. At the end of Matthew 22, Jesus presses the Jewish leaders to face the truth about the Messiah in their own scriptures, printed right there for them in the scrolls that they knew so well. 
Before we see what happens next on that busy Tuesday, I want to return our attention to the second judgment parable Jesus spoke against the Jewish leaders on this day. Possibly less than an hour before Jesus speaks the words recorded for us in Matthew 23, he painted a picture of God's sentence, God's judicial sentence against the current leadership of God's people in the parable of the wretched tenant farmers. It was after Jesus told this second parable that the chief priests and the Pharisees realized that they themselves were featured characters in the stories that Jesus was telling. They recognized themselves as the tenant farmers who refused to deliver the fruit of the vineyard to the vineyard owner. They were the ones, Jesus was saying, had abused and murdered the servants sent to collect the fruit. And it was they themselves who said, out loud, with their own mouths, what those tenant farmers deserved. Look again at Matthew 21, 40 and 41. Jesus said, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus affirms their answer and clarifies it in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The chief priests and the Pharisees will no longer be the leaders of God's people. They are being replaced. This is the backdrop for Matthew 23. The chapter divides into three distinct parts. In verses 1 to 12, Jesus addresses the crowds and his disciples about the scribes and the Pharisees directly. <clears throat> and in verse 30, 13 to 36, Jesus addresses the scribes and Pharisees directly one last time with a series of woes directed against them. And in verses 37 to 39, Jesus addresses Jerusalem as a whole in a poetic lament. Jesus will then leave the temple for the last time, a moment that has huge prophetic significance. And in chapters 24 and 25, he addresses his disciples privately on the Mount of Olives. The emphasis in chapters 23 to 25 is thoroughly on God's future judgment as an aspect of the final consummation of God's heavenly kingdom on earth. Thus, I've labeled these three chapters the kingdom coming discourse. So as we enter chapter 23, we're going to hear Jesus elaborate further on the reasons God's judgment is coming against the current leadership of God's people. It will be abundantly clear why these scribes and Pharisees can no longer function as leaders in the heavenly kingdom Jesus is establishing on earth. And from this, I think we can also learn some important lessons for the way the new leaders of God's people must serve in God's heavenly kingdom on earth. Thus, we should view these words of Jesus as warnings to those who would be leaders in the church among his listeners. Now, that doesn't mean this sermon is just for church leaders. Jesus has much to say to all of his followers here. And if you don't know Jesus, tune in as well. Jesus is here for you and he has some things to say to you who don't know him as well. The last thing we heard in our study of Matthew's gospel, in Matthew twenty-two forty-six, 46, was, 
And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. As we'll see next week, the words of Matthew 23 officially conclude Jesus' public ministry. So let's begin looking at chapter 23. We're going to hear about three dangers for leaders of God's people. First, there is the danger of hypocritical legalism. Look at verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Again, recall that Jesus is standing in the temple courts sometime on Tuesday. Jews would have been coming in and out, but I imagine that many would have gathered around and stuck around to see the fireworks. A showdown between Jesus and the Jewish leaders was unfolding on this particular Tuesday, and I'm sure a multitude of people gathered to listen. Jesus has been going toe-to-toe with these Jewish leaders, and he has knocked them completely off balance. They're not quite out for the count, but he definitely has them on the ropes. And Jesus turns to the audience, and this is where my own excitement and amazement about Jesus rises. He is about to say some very direct and very critical things about these Jewish leaders, men who were respected in Jerusalem, and many of them probably throughout the larger region of Judea. Here, in the temple, in Jerusalem, on their turf, as it were, he stands tall and speaks boldly. Matthew tells us that Jesus is directing his comments to the crowds and to his disciples. So the twelve and probably other men and women who were following Jesus around and were committed to him were part of a larger crowd of Jews now gathered in the temple courts. We'll see how Jesus shifts to addressing uh, his disciples more directly at a certain point in the conversation. But at the beginning, at least, his words are for all the Jews. In verse 2, he begins by seeming to affirm the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. Now, there's overlap between these two groups. Scribes is a professional title. Pharisees is a theological or philosophical label. Thus, not all Pharisees are scribes. Not all scribes are Pharisees, but the most prominent Pharisees were indeed scribes. Scribes were academics, scholars. Many of them would have taught the Hebrew Scriptures to people, but many would have been otherwise employed as record keepers, dictation takers, and things like that. Jesus indicates that these scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. There's some debate about what that phrase, Moses' seat, refers to. There is some evidence that in the Jewish synagogues of the time, there was a special chair or a stone seat facing the congregation that was reserved for the man who would be teaching from the Torah, from the Scriptures, at that synagogue gathering. However, it's unclear that this particular seat was referred to as Moses' seat. It's also possible that Jesus is using this phrase figuratively to highlight the authority of the scribes and Pharisees. The custom of the day was for teachers to sit while teaching, and so the scribes and Pharisees would be the ones viewed as having the authority to teach the words of Moses. 
God's law to the people. I think this is probably what Jesus means. He is affirming to the crowds and to his disciples that the scribes and the Pharisees have a certain authority to teach the Scriptures. In light of Jesus' earlier parable of the wretched tenant farmers, we could see the scribes and Pharisees as the tenants, the vineyard owner hired. God granted a stewardship of authority to the scribes and Pharisees, which they were to discharge by teaching the people of God, which should have led the people to be fruitful. Could Jesus be being sarcastic here? I think it's likely. Jesus is saying, if I may offer an interpretation of his possible tone, oh yeah, these guys, they sit on Moses' chair. They are the authorized teachers of Israel. This stands in tension with something that Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, after Jesus finished his kingdom life discourse, the Sermon on the Mount. We read these words. Matthew 7, 28, 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I believe in Matthew 23 here, Jesus is publicly mocking the scribes and Pharisees. As the parable of the rich tenant farmers had indicated, they really were appointed by God as the leaders. God entrusted the scriptures to them to teach the people how to be truly fruitful. But what have they done with that authority that was entrusted to them? Where's the fruit? And after all, who now has the right to sit on Moses' seat? Jesus. Jesus teaches as the only one who truly embodies God's authority. He is the Word. He is the King. But at this moment, on Tuesday... Before the all-important Friday to come, the leaders have not yet been chucked out of the vineyard. They have not yet been replaced. So Jesus addresses Jews in the crowd who are going to continue after Friday when Jesus will die on the cross, after Sunday when Jesus will rise from the dead, and after the upcoming Pentecost when Jesus will send the Spirit of God, pouring Him out on His followers. And the proclamation of the gospel will begin in earnest. Many of these Jews in the crowd will continue being Jews. What's Jesus saying to them? He's warning them. Just as he warned his own disciples earlier about continuing to follow these condemned leaders. Earlier, Jesus had warned his disciples back in Matthew 16, 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew makes clear a few verses later that leaven was a metaphor for the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, particularly their united teaching against Jesus. So here, Jesus warns the Jewish crowds more broadly with an ironic twist. Here's how the irony continues. First, he sarcastically affirms their authoritative position. Second, in verse 3, he issues what I take to be an ironic command. So do and observe whatever they tell you. Jesus commands the Jewish listeners and his disciples to obey everything the scribes and Pharisees tell them to do. This command has stirred debate among students of Scripture for ages. 
But it makes the most sense to me to take Jesus as being ironic. Oh yeah, these guys sit on Moses' seat all right. And since that's their position, you ought to do every little thing they tell you. It's what Jesus says next that I think makes it likely the crowds and his disciples could have understood him with this irony in view. Look at all of verse 3 again. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. Jesus says, do what the scribes and Pharisees say. Do not do what the scribes and Pharisees do. The scribes and Pharisees do not do what they say. The Greek word translated do occurs three times. It's also the word underneath the word practice in our passage. And I believe following the do's is the key to understanding Jesus' irony appropriately. Again, I believe Jesus is sarcastically affirming their authority. They sit on Moses' seat, but not for long. They have this authority, but they are not using it appropriately. Therefore, they are to be condemned. Why should the crowds, and especially Jesus' disciples, do what the scribes and Pharisees tell them to do when the scribes and Pharisees themselves don't even do what they tell others to do? This is where we see the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees on display yet again. Jesus' woes against the scribes and Pharisees will emphasize their hypocrisy. They sit on Moses' seat and they tell people to obey what Moses wrote as well as a host of traditions that they developed in addition to the commands of Moses. But even they don't do what they tell others to do. Thus, they nullify their own authority. Jesus teaches as one who actually has God's authority. The scribes and Pharisees had received a delegated authority from God to teach God's Word, but they have abused and misused that authority and therefore stand condemned. Thus, when Jesus tells the crowds and His disciples to do everything the scribes and the Pharisees tell them to do, He's essentially, ironically saying, yes, obey these leaders to their doom. In the Kingdom Life Discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus condemned the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, but there the focus was on the ways they did right things, such as prayed, gave alms, and fasted with wrong motives. Here, Jesus also says they are guilty of not living up to their own standards, whether that be the genuine standards of God's law laid out in the Mosaic law, or their traditional teachings, which Jesus earlier said in Matthew 15, end up nullifying God's law. And as one writer puts it, those whose teaching does not correspond to their deeds are automatically disqualified. Add to their hypocrisy the danger of legalism. Look again at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Here, Jesus sets his sights intensely on the ways they added to God's law and demanded rigorous obedience to their traditions. In many cases, the motive for developing these traditions seems good. Their practice was referred to as building a fence around the law. For example... 
If you wanted to help people make sure they didn't break the commandment to remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy, then you might begin to get very specific on how people must remember the Sabbath day and what it looks like to keep it holy. They're just seeking to apply the Scriptures, right? The commandment is then elaborated in Scripture that people must not do any work on the Sabbath day. Well, shouldn't we seek to define work? I mean, what counts as work that would break the commandment? The Mosaic Law didn't specify, so the Pharisees did specify. Here, Jesus vividly depicts the true results of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. They burdened people. John MacArthur accurately draws out the picture that Jesus paints here. He writes, The picture Jesus gives here reflects the common custom of that day and of people in many underdeveloped countries today of loading up a donkey or a camel or other beast of burden to the point where it can hardly move. As they traveled down the road, the owner would walk alongside, carrying nothing himself, berating and beating the animal if it happened to stumble or balk with no concern for the animal's feelings or welfare. That, Jesus said, is exactly the way the scribes and Pharisees treated their fellow Jews. And when people failed to carry their burdens successfully, the leaders undoubtedly rebuked them, heaping up a different burden, the burden of guilt, on their shoulders. Jesus will have more to say about that later in the chapter. And how different Jesus himself is. He has used the image of the burden earlier, and here we can see a wonderful contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees. Back in Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30, Jesus famously used a similar image to describe himself and his call to people. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And now we know why they were heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus does not abolish the law for his followers. He has indeed fulfilled it, which includes him obeying it perfectly, correctly interpreting it, embodying all of its institutions, and enduring its curse in the place of those who come to him, those who disobeyed the law. Here, Jesus calls people to learn from him and not from the Pharisees. The image of the yoke communicates the idea of working for Jesus. He invites those who have been carrying the burdens laid on them by the Pharisees as well as the burdens laid on them because of the guilt that all people carry and to replace those burdens with his yoke. Jesus promises rest to all who come to work for Him. And and He promises that the work will be restful, the yoke will be easy, and the burden will be light. Unlike the Pharisees who refuse to lift a finger to give assistance when people stumble and fall, crushed under the weight of expectations laid on them even beyond the commands of the Mosaic Law itself, Jesus provides personal assistance. He gives the Holy Spirit to all who come to Him, and the Spirit enables His people to obey His Word. 
The Apostle John understood and experienced this reality, so much so that he could write in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. The scribes and Pharisees made God's commandments burdensome. Their responsibility as leaders of God's people was to help God's people obey God's commandments, to cultivate and deliver fruit from God's vineyard. Instead, they created further obstacles to the fruitfulness of the vineyard. If you think about the idea of a fence around the law, their goal was supposedly to keep people from even getting close to disobeying the commandments. However, In an ironic twist, they actually kept people from even getting close to obeying the commandments. Jesus starts here, warning the crowds and His disciples about the danger of hypocritical legalism. I think their hypocrisy fed their legalism. Jesus said that they did not practice what they preached. They did not do what they said as they didn't measure up to their own standards, that led them to be harsh toward those listening to, learning from, and following them. They demanded more from others to cover their own inadequacies. Jesus has come to set people free from those kinds of burdens, that kind of slavery. And new leadership for God's people will be required, and they will be expected to avoid the danger of hypocritical legalism. And there's a second danger Jesus zooms in on. Look at verses 5 to 7, where Jesus speaks of the danger of narcissistic pride. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Jesus begins with a general statement that he then illustrates with six examples arranged in three pairs. The general statement is that the scribes and Pharisees do all their deeds to be seen by others. Jesus spoke about this in Matthew chapter 6 in his kingdom life discourse. The hypocrites announce their charitable giving, pray aloud in synagogues and on street corners, and let everyone know about their fasting by looking miserable all so that they might be seen and applauded by others. Indeed, the Greek word used here and in Matthew 6 for to be seen is the word from which we get the English word theater. The scribes and Pharisees are constantly putting on a show, drawing attention to themselves instead of pointing the people toward seeing God more clearly and praising God more consistently. This is plain and pure narcissism. One writer defines narcissism as an excessively high and unrealistic opinion about oneself and an obsession with one's public image. The term comes from a character in Greek mythology, a man named Narcissus, who saw his reflection in a pool of water and fell in love with himself. Narcissism is a particularly nasty form of pride. One writer describes some of narcissism's characteristic traits like this. The narcissist depends on others to validate his self-esteem. He cannot live without an admiring audience. Narcissists really do believe 
that they are better than others. They have convinced themselves or have been convinced by others in some cases that they are uniquely special. For the scribes and Pharisees, it was their legalistic show of deeds, their super spirituality that marked them out in their own minds as a cut above the rest. Jesus addressed the narcissism of the Jewish leaders in John 5, 44, asking them, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Here, Jesus provides six ways the scribes and Pharisees cultivated their narcissistic pride. First, Jesus says that they make their phylacteries broad. Many modern Jews still wear phylacteries, You can put the next slide up. You can see some photos on the screen. Phylacteries are small leather boxes attached to a person's forehead or to the left arm with a network of straps. Inside the boxes are tiny scrolls or parchments with Hebrew scripture from at least one of the four passages mentioned up there on the screen. The practice is supposedly in obedience to these four texts. For example... See Deuteronomy 6, 8, which says, You shall bind them, the commandments of the law, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. However, this seems to be a case where someone took literally a passage of Scripture that was intended to communicate figuratively. It is clearer that this is intended figuratively in the first passage mentioning such an idea, Exodus 13, 9. Moses is laying out the procedures for keeping the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, recalling the original Passover event. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of Yahweh may be in your mouth. Ah. Here in context, it is clear that the it that is to be a sign on their hands and a memorial between their eyes, is the rituals of the feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. Thus, they keep the Passover on their hand by going through the rituals annually. They keep the Passover as a memorial between their eyes as they eat the meal and narrate the events around the dinner table every year. The law of Moses doesn't seem to have intended to lay out an expectation of any physical mark or box or writing of Scripture literally placed on on people's hands or foreheads. As a side note, there are many occasions throughout the Scriptures of marks being placed on people's hands or foreheads, and almost all of them, if not all of them, are intended as figures of speech like this, probably including the most famous of all, the mark of the beast in the book of Revelation. We need to beware of the tendency to an overly literalistic reading of Scripture that reflects the Pharisees' approach to the Bible. Back to Jesus. So the scribes and Pharisees are not merely wearing these phylacteries. They were making their boxes extra big, implying that they had perhaps extra Scripture inside, or if nothing else, projecting an image of themselves as experts of the law, which they were supposed to be. Nevertheless, Jesus pinpoints their motivation here. They broaden their phylacteries to draw attention to themselves. 
Rather than pointing to the law and the God who gave it, they draw attention to themselves and thus necessarily drew attention away from the God who deserves all glory. Secondly, Jesus indicates that they make their fringes long. This referred to a part of the distinctive wardrobe prescribed in the Mosaic law for Jewish men. Numbers 15, 37 to 39 provides the legislation and the reason for it. Yahweh said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of Yahweh, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Jesus wore these tassels. The bleeding woman in Matthew 9 touched these tassels and received her healing as she believed in Jesus' power to heal. The Mosaic Law nowhere specified the length of these tassels. Thus, the scribes and Pharisees, seeking to be noticed by others, made theirs extra long. What was given to the men of Israel as a reminder to be obedient to the Law of Moses and a warning against whoring after their own selfish desires and inclinations was twisted by the Jewish leaders into a tool fueling their narcissistic pride. What one writer called Pharisaic peacockery. Thirdly, in verses 6 and 7, Jesus speaks of four things that the scribes and Pharisees love, all in some way related to being recognized and honored as Jesus said, they seek glory from one another, and that is what they love. They love the place of honor at feasts. This would be the seats closest to the host, immediately to his right and to his left. They love the best seats in the synagogues. Benches would line the walls of a typical synagogue, and there appears to be space at the front, beside and behind, where the teacher would sit to expound the scriptures. The scribes and Pharisees love to sit in those seats. They faced the congregation so that it would be easy for an average synagogue attender to be distracted from attending to the teaching of the Scriptures, to look at and admire those extra-long fringes and ginormous phylacteries of the honored Pharisees sitting up front. They also love greetings in the marketplaces. Now, I enjoy it when a friend says hi at Wegmans just as much as the next guy. But I think these greetings are tied closely with the next thing they love, being called rabbi. Hearing someone address them publicly by their distinguished title, rabbi, strokes their ego, fuels their narcissism, and puts a smile on their face. As Jesus concludes on this point, he turns to addressing his disciples more directly in verse 8. The you, in verse 8, is emphatic. And I imagine Jesus turning and even pointing to his disciples, all gathered and huddled together in the midst of the crowd. Jesus is seeking to separate these, his disciples from the scribes and Pharisees. The next few verses are especially for them, as he warns them about the danger of exalted titles. Look at verses 8 to 10. 
But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Three particular titles come into focus, but I think we could surely broaden this out. And in fact, it's not the actual titles that are the problem. It's the motive behind using those titles that's the real problem. The scribes and Pharisees may have used all three of these titles. We know rabbi was common, and there is some evidence for father being used in the context of students of rabbis. The word translated instructor in the ESV is not the usual word for teacher, and it is a very rare Greek term. It seems to refer to what we might call private tutors or perhaps even a personal mentor. Jesus indicates that the scribes and the Pharisees use these titles and perhaps others like them to puff up their egos and bolster their narcissistic pride. Jesus insists that his followers and the future leaders of God's people must avoid the use of titles to draw attention to oneself or to inflate one's ego. However, there is a tension here we need to observe. The Great Commission, famously, concludes Matthew's Gospel. And there, Jesus will command and commission his followers to make disciples of all nations. And the primary ongoing means for that work will be teaching people to obey everything Jesus has commanded. Thus, Jesus trains and instructs his disciples to teach but he insists they mustn't be enamored with the titles rabbi, father, or instructor. Furthermore, we see Paul referring to himself as a kind of father to some folks he discipled in 1 Corinthians 4.15 and Philemon 10. And certainly there are other titles used throughout the New Testament of various Christian leaders, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, elders, overseers, teachers, and deacons. There doesn't seem to be any prohibition against using those titles, even though I suspect the same attitude could be present in someone holding those titles. So what's the danger here specifically? I'm using the term exalted titles in somewhat of a double meaning. I think the primary problem is the use of titles for the purpose of exalting the person, But I think there is also a unique problem with these three specific titles in their context. And it has to do with the way they seem to usurp or overshadow wrongly a particular role of God in his relationship with his people. The Great Commission heads off this danger by specifying that we are to be teaching people to obey everything Jesus has commanded giving us no permission to command people to do merely what we want them to do. In other words, we must not develop traditions that go beyond what is written in the Scriptures the way the Pharisees did. We make disciples of Jesus, not ourselves. So let's review the specifics here. What's the problem with rabbi? Well, it's not precisely equivalent to the teacher, The Hebrew word it's derived from literally means great one. And John MacArthur suggests that it's closer to the way our English title doctor is used today, not as in a medical doctor, but as in someone who has earned an academic postgraduate degree. In fact, 
There's a problem in the modern Western church today that troubles me significantly. Pastors using the title doctor when they have not earned a doctorate. It is an epidemic in the charismatic wing of Christianity. There are places called diploma mills where people can pay a fee, maybe take a class, or meet some other minimal requirements and they will be awarded with an honorary doctorate. And then these teachers will either plaster the title doctor before their name on all their books, or they'll at least indicate that they have received a doctorate in their bios and thus communicate to people that they have done a level of academic work that they have not actually done. The average listener or reader will assume that they are a qualified and verified expert in a particular field related to theology, ministry, history, or the Bible. Folks, this kind of deception is just plain sin. Now, to be fair, there is a more legitimate way to receive an honorary doctorate. Many legitimate seminaries and institutions offer honorary doctorates to pastors or ministers or missionaries or teachers who have written books, launched ministries, and preached faithfully for many years, genuinely bringing benefit to the body of Christ all over the world. But even those who receive this kind of honorary doctorate should not be using the title doctor. And that's actually usually printed on the certificate. You are not permitted to use the title doctor. Most pastors and Christian teachers who have earned doctorate degrees and write books for the church haven't felt the need to refer to themselves as doctor. As one writer says, no one wants an honorary doctor to perform heart surgery on them. And I'd add that I don't want someone who presents himself as something that he's not seeking to teach me truth about God. It's not difficult to verify whether a particular author or Christian teacher earned his or her doctorate. Google knows. Just ask. Now, why am I dwelling on this unpleasant reality? The problem Jesus was addressing here in these verses is alive and well in the church today. Jesus explains his reasoning for prohibiting the misuse of exalted titles. In verse 8, don't be called rabbi for two reasons. First, you have one teacher. Jesus is probably referring to God as the true teacher of his followers. This was a promise of the new covenant. After promising the permanent covenant of peace, he would establish with his people and the building of the new Jerusalem. In Isaiah 54, 13, Yahweh promises, All your children shall be taught by Yahweh, and great shall be the peace of your children. Jesus' disciples will be the beneficiaries of this eternal new covenant of peace, which he is going to establish in his death on the cross just three days after his words here in Matthew 23. His disciples don't need to elevate themselves as rabbis, great ones, because God is their primary teacher. And every human teacher within the church should remember that and be sure that their teaching is clearly drawing out the word of God from the scriptures. But the second reason we don't need to be called rabbi is that we are all siblings. There are women in Jesus' audience, I'm sure, among his disciples, and the term brothers refers to both genders. Jesus' followers are to be a family together, and elders, deacons, and ministry leaders are still fundamentally brothers and sisters with the everyone else in the church. 
Jesus continues the family concern with the next one. In verse 9 we read, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Now, if we take this out of context, we'd all be disobedient to this one. Jesus is not forbidding us to call our earthly dad's father. But within the context of the church, we're all spiritual siblings. Now, Paul can speak of becoming Onesimus's father in Philemon 10, but only in a metaphorical sense. And I think Paul would not want Onesimus to address him as Father Paul. In light of Jesus' words here, it is odd that we've long been accustomed to referring to folks like Augustine and Origen and Ambrose as early church fathers. How long have we ignored Jesus' teaching? And how easily do we, like the Pharisees, allow our traditions to nullify God's Word? Jesus' primary point is that to refer to a Bible teacher as father seems to elevate them to a level of honor and respect that should be reserved for God alone. It is the Word of our Heavenly Father that must shape our lives, not the words and ideas of any human being. Finally, in verse 10, we read, Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. I mentioned that this title is unique in Scripture, but the personal teaching role it describes seems to reflect how the scribes and Pharisees might be elevated in a community as their special teacher. Who's the primary voice the Jewish people would hear teaching them the Word of God? It would be the local rabbi or a particular school of scribes. But for followers of Jesus, it is His Word that must be heard. The Pharisees here are filling a role that properly belongs to the Messiah. And He has, he has arrived to take up His post. Jesus Himself, the son of the vineyard owner whom the tenants killed, has arrived and He will rise from the dead. And their leadership will be at an end. And after the upcoming Pentecost, Jesus will deliver His Word to His disciples through the Holy Spirit. And those who step up in the church to teach and preach, take heed. Jesus' brother James tells us in no uncertain terms, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And what will be the standard of judgment? Surely it will be what is reflected in the Great Commission Have we faithfully taught people to obey everything the Messiah has commanded? Have we faithfully unfolded the whole counsel of God? Have we carefully echoed the voice of the Good Shepherd? So, what of titles in the church then? Does it matter if you call me Pastor Justin? Some of you have asked me what I prefer to be called. I don't really care. The more you get to know me, I hope you'll be more comfortable simply referring to me as Justin. But when someone addresses me as pastor or Pastor Justin, I don't flinch or feel like I'm being flattered. I like the comments of another pastor by the name of Doug O'Donnell on this point. He writes, pastor is a humble title. His eminence is not. Bondservant is a humble title. Very reverend is not. And titles like mother superior and his holiness ought to make us nauseous. Let's vomit them out of the church's mouth. 
If we are to bestow titles upon those who teach the Word of God, let's stick with humble titles. But in any case, let's pursue the kind of intimacy that makes us comfortable being on a first-name basis, regardless of office or position. As Jesus addresses His disciples, which ultimately includes us, He forbids us from following the Pharisees in their use of exalted titles. Finally, in opposition to the narcissistic pride of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus instructs us about the exaltation of humility. Look at verses 11 and 12. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. To his disciples, Jesus repeats himself from earlier in his ministry. On this final Tuesday, before his death and resurrection, he reminds them of what should fundamentally characterize them as they lay the foundation of the church and as they lead God's people, replacing the faulty leadership of the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, service and humility. The fundamental purpose of discipleship is that the disciple would become like the master. And so it is that Jesus himself is the greatest among them. Yet, he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, as he said in Matthew 20, 28. Jesus is the suffering servant, poetically described by Isaiah, and as Paul would later poetically describe in Philippians 2, 8 through 11, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus wants his followers to humble themselves as a servant like he did. The scribes and Pharisees have been exalting themselves. Jesus promises that they will be humbled. And we should hear an ominous note here. These promises in verse 12 will be fulfilled on Judgment Day. Not only are they very soon going to lose their positions of leadership within God's people when Jesus establishes His new covenant people, pouring out the Holy Spirit on His followers, but within 40 years, Jerusalem and the temple are going to be completely destroyed. Everything that propped up the scribes and Pharisees in their self-promotion will be wiped out, and many of them will lose their lives as well. But beyond that, they will have to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day only to receive eternal condemnation. And that warning should come across to leaders in the church who deceive and abuse their flocks as wolves in sheep's clothing. All who refuse to trust Jesus also will join them in hell on that day. But disciples should hear the promise of exaltation to those who humble themselves during their lives, trusting Jesus for salvation, following Him in obedience to His Word. Jesus promises that God will exalt them on Judgment Day. This is one of about 13 promises in Scripture that God will exalt the righteous. Because Jesus 
was the truly and perfectly righteous man, you don't have to work in this world to lift yourself up. You can abandon the pursuit of exalting yourself. You don't need to draw attention to yourself. You don't need to make much of yourself. And you don't need to achieve your own status or your own righteousness before the Lord. Jesus offers you His own righteousness. And it's perfect. God promises to lift you up. God promises to make you look good. God promises to make you truly significant. When you trust in Jesus, God counts you righteous makes you significant and begins to transform you to look like the perfectly righteous man, Jesus. The command here is to humble yourselves. Take the form of a servant. Instead of speaking to build yourself up, instead of dressing to impress and draw attention to yourself, instead of spending your money in a way that puts the spotlight on you, look for ways to serve others all the while putting the spotlight on Jesus instead. Humble yourself before Jesus. Receive the salvation He offers and stop trying to save yourself. But also humble yourself before others. Abandon your pride and your efforts to exalt yourself above others. Let me close quickly with some warnings and lessons for church leaders. And everyone in this building is a potential church leader, by the way. So no one check out. The replacement of the scribes and Pharisees as leaders of God's people will embody servant leadership in the church. So, instead of crushing others with hypocritical legalism, Christian leaders must eagerly extend forgiveness to those who sin. Revisit Matthew 18, 22, where Jesus indicated to Peter that he ought to forgive a Christian sibling who sins against him 77 times, every single time. And of course, Jesus meant that our posture ought to be that we are ready to remove any self-imposed limitations to our forgiveness. Secondly, instead of drawing attention to yourself with what one writer calls pretentious displays of piety, Christian leaders must focus on practicing our righteousness in secret. Revisit Matthew 6, 1-18 for details, including the promise that our Father who sees in secret will reward us, so that we need not worry about who sees us or our actions. Finally, instead of using titles to abuse our authority, Christian leaders must serve others regardless of title or position. Revisit Matthew 20, 25 to 28, where Jesus characterizes servant leadership as avoiding, dominating, and abusing those being led. I'll give the final word this morning to commentator Michael Wilkins. But those who, in the example of Jesus, came not to be served but to serve and to live out the humble role of servant will be exalted as true sons and daughters of the kingdom. This does not indicate exaltation over each other, but the equal exaltation that all disciples of Jesus enjoy as those who are brothers and sisters of one another with Jesus as master and his father as their own. Would you pray with me? Father, we take your word seriously. You give us warnings out of love. And so we pray we would hear them with the tone of love. You want us to embody.
set every one of us. Would you help us to fight it, to resist the temptation, to make much of ourselves, whether on social media or in person. Help us to stop comparing ourselves with each other and feeling either inferior or superior to others because of what we have or what we've done. Correct us, change us, make us more like Jesus who didn't do any of those things. Help us to cling to and be satisfied with the promise that one day you will make much of all of us in a way that far outstrips anything we could receive in this life. So help us abandon the pursuit of our own glory and help us be overly dedicated to making much of you, making much of your son, and making much of the grace that you've extended to us in him. Thank you for loving us so richly. We pray that you would compel us to bend over backwards to serve one another and to point to Jesus all along the way. Thank you for, for saving us from our sin, for giving us for our pride and our exaltation of ourselves. We've all done it in one way or another. So thank you for covering that. Help us to be better and to grow by your spirit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We have a few announcements. If you would hang tight, there's food to be had, but hang tight. It'll be over soon. John's going to share something with us, and then I've got a couple more announcements right after he's done.